Well, welcome again to another podcast, Down to Earth, but Heavenly Minded. I'm your host, Irv Risch. And as we move forward, we're going to be going through the entire New Testament. Uh, and with that, we're going to do a commentary afterwards. And uh, with that said, let us just move on to our next section. And thank you for joining me. Chapter 5 Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. You are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. You have heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says, You fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. So if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother, and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard, and you be put in prison. Truly I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny.
You have heard that it was said, You shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. It was also said, Whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery, and whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Again you have heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, Do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. You have heard that it was said, An eye for an eye, and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, Do not resist the one who is evil, but if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you, and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. You have heard that it was said, You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? You, therefore, must be perfect, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Matthew chapter 5 4. The Constitution of the Kingdom, chapters 5 to 7 It is no accident that the Sermon on the Mount is placed near the beginning of the New Testament. Its position indicates its importance. In it the king summarizes the character and conduct expected of his subjects. This sermon is not a presentation of the plan of salvation, nor is its teaching intended for unsaved people. It was addressed to the disciples, 5 verses 1 and 2, and was intended to be the constitution, or the system of laws and principles, which was to govern the king's subjects during his reign. It was meant for all past, present, or future who acknowledge Christ as King. When Christ was on earth, it had direct application to his disciples. Now, while our Lord reigns in heaven, it applies to all who crown him King in their hearts. Finally, it will be the code of behavior for Christ's followers during the tribulation and during his reign on earth. The sermon has a distinct Jewish flavor, as seen in allusions to the council, i.e., the Sanhedrin, in 5 verse 22, the altar. 5 verses 23 and 24, and Jerusalem, 5 verse 35. 
Yet it would be wrong to say that its teaching is exclusively for believing Israelites in the past or future, it is for those of every age who acknowledge Jesus Christ as King. At the Beatitudes, 5 verses 1 to 12. 5 verses 1 and 2 The sermon opens with the Beatitudes, or blessings. These set forth the ideal citizen of Christ's kingdom. The qualities described and approved are the opposite of those that the world values. A W. Tozer describes them thus, a fairly accurate description of the human race might be furnished one unacquainted with it by taking the Beatitudes, turning them wrong side out, and saying, here is your human race. 5 verse 3 This first blessing is pronounced on the poor in spirit. This does not refer to natural disposition, but to one's deliberate choice and discipline. The poor in spirit are those who acknowledge their own helplessness and rely on God's omnipotence. They sense their spiritual need and find it supplied in the Lord. The kingdom of heaven, where self-sufficiency is no virtue and self-exaltation is a vice, belongs to such people. 5 verse 4 Those who mourn are blessed, a day of comfort awaits them. This does not refer to mourning because of the vicissitudes of life. It is the sorrow which one experiences because of fellowship with the Lord Jesus. It is an active sharing of the world's hurt and sin with Jesus. Therefore, it includes not only sorrow for one's own sin, but also sorrow because of the world's appalling condition, its rejection of the Savior, and the doom of those who refuse His mercy. These mourners shall be comforted in the coming day when God shall wipe away every tear from their eyes, Revelation 21 verse 4. Believers do all their mourning in this life, for unbelievers, today's grief is only a foretaste of eternal sorrow. 5 verse 5 A third blessing is pronounced on the meek, they shall inherit the earth. By nature these people might be volatile, temperamental, and gruff. But by purposefully taking Christ's Spirit on them, they become meek or gentle, compare Matthew 11 verse 29. Meekness implies acceptance of one's lowly position. The meek person is gentle and mild in his own cause, though he may be a lion in God's cause or in defending others. The meek do not now inherit the earth, rather they inherit abuse and dispossession. But they will literally inherit the earth when Christ, the King, reigns for a thousand years in peace and prosperity. 5 verse 6 Next, a blessing is pronounced on those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, they are promised satisfaction. These people have a passion for righteousness in their own lives, they long to see honesty, integrity, and justice in society, they look for practical holiness in the church. Like the people of whom Gamaliel Bradford wrote, they have a thirst no earthly stream can satisfy, a hunger that must feed on Christ or die. These people will be abundantly satisfied in Christ's coming kingdom, they shall be filled, for righteousness will reign and corruption will give way to the highest moral standards. 5 verse 7 In our Lord's kingdom, the merciful are blessed, for they shall obtain mercy. To be merciful means to be actively compassionate. In one sense it means to withhold punishment from offenders who deserve it. In a wider sense it means to help others in need who cannot help themselves. God showed mercy in sparing us from the judgment which our sins deserved and in demonstrating kindness to us through the saving work of Christ. We imitate God when we have compassion. The merciful shall obtain mercy. Here, Jesus is not referring to the mercy of salvation which God gives to a believing sinner, that mercy is not dependent on a person's being merciful, it is a free, unconditional gift. Rather the Lord is speaking of the daily mercy needed for Christian living and of mercy in that future day when one's works will be reviewed, 1 Corinthians 3 verses 12-15.
If one has not been merciful, that person will not receive mercy, that is, one's rewards will decrease accordingly. 5 verse 8 The pure in heart are given the assurance that they shall see God. A pure-hearted person is one whose motives are unmixed, whose thoughts are holy, whose conscience is clean. The expression they shall see God may be understood in several ways. First, the pure in heart see God now through fellowship in the Word and the Spirit. Second, they sometimes have a supernatural appearance or vision of the Lord presented to them. Third, they shall see God in the person of Jesus when He comes again. Fourth, they shall see God in eternity. 5 verse 9 A blessing is pronounced on the peacemakers, they shall be called sons of God. Notice that the Lord is not speaking about people with a peaceful disposition or those who love peace. He is referring to those who actively intervene to make peace. The natural approach is to watch strife from the sidelines. The divine approach is to take positive action toward creating peace, even if it means taking abuse and invective. Peacemakers are called sons of God. This is not how they become sons of God that can only happen by receiving Jesus Christ as Savior, John 1 verse 12. By making peace, believers manifest themselves as sons of God, and God will one day acknowledge them as people who bear the family likeness. 5 verse 10 The next beatitude deals with those who are persecuted, not for their own wrongdoings, but for righteousness' sake. The kingdom of heaven is promised to those believers who suffer for doing right. Their integrity condemns the ungodly world and brings out its hostility. People hate a righteous life because it exposes their own unrighteousness. 5 verse 11 The final beatitude seems to be a repetition of the preceding one. However, there is one difference. In the previous verse, the subject was persecution because of righteousness, here it is persecution for Christ's sake. The Lord knew that His disciples would be maltreated because of their association with, and loyalty to, Him. History has confirmed this, from the outset the world has persecuted, jailed, and killed followers of Jesus. 5 verse 12 To suffer for Christ's sake is a privilege that should cause joy. A great reward awaits those who thus become companions of the prophets in tribulation. Those OT spokesmen for God stood true in spite of persecution. All who imitate their loyal courage will share their present exhilaration and future exaltation. The Beatitudes present a portrait of the ideal citizen in Christ's kingdom. Notice the emphases on righteousness, verse 6, peace, verse 9, and joy, verse 12. Paul probably had this passage in mind when he wrote, for the kingdom of God is not eating and drinking, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit, Romans 14 verse 17. The Believer's Relation to the Law The law is that system of legislation given by God through Moses to the nation of Israel. The entire body of the law is found in Exodus 20-31, Leviticus, and Deuteronomy, though its essence is embodied in the Ten Commandments. The law was not given as a means of salvation, Acts 13 verse 39, Romans 3 20 a.m., Galatians 2 verses 16 and 21, 3 verse 11, it was designed to show people their sinfulness, Romans 3 colon 20 b, 5 verse 20, 7 verse 7, 1 Corinthians 15 verse 56, Galatians 3 verse 19, and then drive them to God for His gracious salvation. It was given to the nation of Israel, even though it contains moral principles which are valid for people in every age, Romans 2 verses 14 and 15. God tested Israel under the law as a sample of the human race, and Israel's guilt proved the world's guilt, Romans 3 verse 19.
the law had attached to it the penalty of death, Galatians 3 verse 10, and to break one command was to be guilty of all, James. 2.10, since people had broken the law, they were under the curse of death. God's righteousness and holiness demanded that the penalty be paid. It was for this reason that Jesus came into the world, to pay the penalty by his death. He died as a substitute for guilty lawbreakers, even though he himself was sinless. He did not wave the law aside, rather he met the full demands of the law by fulfilling its strict requirements in his life and in his death. Thus, the gospel does not overthrow the law, it upholds the law and shows how the law's demands have been fully satisfied by Christ's redemptive work. Therefore, the person who trusts in Jesus is no longer under the law, he is under grace, Romans 6 verse 14. He is dead to the law through the work of Christ. The penalty of the law must be paid only once, since Christ paid the penalty, the believer does not have to. It is in this sense that the law has faded away for the Christian, 2 Corinthians 3 verses 7-11. The law was a tutor until Christ came, but after salvation, this tutor is no longer needed, Galatians 3 verses 24 and 25. Yet, while the Christian is not under the law, that doesn't mean he is lawless. He is bound by a stronger chain than law because he is under the law of Christ, 1 Corinthians 9 verse 21. His behavior is molded, not by fear of punishment, but by a loving desire to please his Savior. Christ has become his rule of life, John 13 verse 15, 15 verse 12, Ephesians 5 verses 1 and 2, 1 John 2 verse 6, 3 verse 16. A common question in a discussion of the believer's relation to the law is, should I obey the Ten Commandments? The answer is that certain principles contained in the law are of lasting relevance. It is always wrong to steal, to covet, or to murder. Nine of the Ten Commandments are repeated in the New Testament, with an important distinction they are not given as law, with penalty attached, but as training in righteousness for the people of God, 2 Timothy 3:16b. The one commandment not repeated is the Sabbath law. Christians are never taught to keep the Sabbath, i.e., the seventh day of the week, Saturday. The ministry of the law to unsaved people is not ended, but we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully, 1 Timothy 1 verse 8. Its lawful use is to produce the knowledge of sin and thus lead to repentance. But the law is not for those who are already saved, the law is not made for a righteous person, 1 Timothy 1 verse 9. The righteousness demanded by the law is fulfilled in those who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit, Romans 8 verse 4. In fact, the teachings of our Lord in the Sermon on the Mount set a higher standard than that set by the law. For instance, the law said, do not murder, Jesus said, do not even hate. So the Sermon on the Mount not only upholds the law and the prophets, but it amplifies them and develops their deeper implications. 5 verse 19 In returning to the sermon, we notice that Jesus anticipated a natural tendency to relax God's commandments. Because they are of such a supernatural nature, people tend to explain them away, to rationalize their meaning. But whoever breaks one part of the law, and teaches other people to do the same, shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. The wonder is that such people are permitted in the kingdom at all, but then, entrance into the kingdom is by faith in Christ. A person's position in the kingdom is determined by his obedience and faithfulness while on earth. The person who obeys the law of the kingdom, that person shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven.
5 verse 20 To gain entrance into the kingdom, our righteousness must surpass the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, who were content with religious ceremonies which gave them an outward, ritual cleansing, but which never changed their hearts. Jesus uses hyperbole, exaggeration, to drive home the truth that external righteousness without internal reality will not gain entrance into the kingdom. The only righteousness that God will accept is the perfection that He imputes to those who accept His Son as Savior, 2 Corinthians 5 verse 21. Of course, where there is true faith in Christ, there will also be the practical righteousness that Jesus describes in the remainder of the sermon. D. Jesus warns against anger, 5 verses 21 to 26. 5 verse 21 The Jews of Jesus' time knew that murder was forbidden by God and that the murderer was liable to punishment. This was true before the giving of the law, Genesis 9 verse 6, and it was later incorporated into the law, Exodus 20 verse 13, Deuteronomy 5 verse 17. With the words, But I say to you, Jesus institutes an amendment to the teaching on murder. No longer could a person take pride in having never committed murder. Jesus now says, In my kingdom, you must not even have murderous thoughts. He traces the act of murder to its source and warns against three forms of unrighteous anger. 5 verse 22 The first is the case of a person who was angry with his brother without a cause. Point five one accused of this crime would be in danger of the judgment, that is, he could be taken to court. Most people can find what they think is a valid cause for their anger, but anger is justified only when God's honor is at stake or when someone else is being wronged. It is never right when expressed in retaliation for personal wrongs. Even more serious is the sin of insulting a brother. In Jesus' day, people used the word raka, an Aramaic term meaning empty one, as a word of contempt and abuse. Those who used this epithet were in danger of the council, that is, they were subject to trial before the Sanhedrin, the highest court in the land. Finally, to call someone a fool is the third form of unrighteous anger that Jesus condemns. Here the word fool means more than just a dunce. It signifies a moral fool who ought to be dead, and it expresses the wish that he were. Today it is common to hear a person cursing another with the words, God damn you. He is calling on God to consign the victim to hell. Jesus says that the one who utters such a curse is in danger of hellfire. The bodies of executed criminals were often thrown into a burning dump outside Jerusalem known as the Valley of Hinnom or Gehenna. This was a figure of the fires of hell which shall never be quenched. There is no mistaking the severity of the Savior's words. He teaches that anger contains the seeds of murder, that abusive language contains the spirit of murder, and that cursing language implies the very desire to murder. The progressive heightening of the crimes demand three degrees of punishment, the judgment, the counsel, and hellfire. In the kingdom, Jesus will deal with sins according to severity. 5 verses 23 and 24 If a person offends another, whether by anger or any other cause, there is no use in his bringing a gift to God the Lord will not be pleased with it. The offender should first go and make the wrong right. Only then will the gift be acceptable. Even though these words are written in a Jewish context, that does not mean there is no application today. Paul interprets this concept in relation to the Lord's Supper, see 1 Corinthians 11. God receives no worship from a believer who is not on speaking terms with another. 5 verses 25 and 26 It is against a litigious spirit and a reluctance to admit guilt that Jesus warns here. 
it is better to promptly settle with an accuser rather than run the risk of a court trial. If that happens, we are bound to lose. While there is some disagreement among scholars about the identity of the people in this parable, the point is clear, if you are wrong, be quick to admit it and make things right. If you remain unrepentant, your sin will eventually catch up with you and you will not only have to make full restitution but suffer additional penalties as well. And don't be in a hurry to go to court. If you do, the law will find you out, and you will pay the last penny. F. Jesus censures divorce, 5 verses 31 and 32. 5 verse 31 Under Old Testament law, divorce was permitted according to Deuteronomy 24 verses 1 to 4. This passage was not concerned with the case of an adulterous wife, the penalty for adultery was death, see Deuteronomy 22 verse 22. Rather, it deals with divorce because of dislike or incompatibility. 5 verse 32 However, in the kingdom of Christ, whoever divorces his wife for any reason except sexual immorality causes her to commit adultery. This does not mean that she automatically becomes an adulteress, it presupposes that, having no means of support, she is forced to live with another man. In so doing she becomes an adulteress. Not only is the former wife living in adultery, whoever marries a woman who is divorced commits adultery. The subject of divorce and remarriage is one of the most complicated topics in the Bible. It is virtually impossible to answer all the questions that arise, but it may be helpful to survey and summarize what we believe the scriptures teach. Divorce and Remarriage Divorce was never God's intention for man. His ideal is that one man and one woman remain married until their union is broken by death, Romans 7 verses 2 and 3. Jesus made this clear to the Pharisees by appealing to the divine order at creation, Matthew 19 verses 4 to 6. God hates divorce, Malachi 2 verse 16, that is, unscriptural divorce. He does not hate all divorce because he speaks of himself as having divorced Israel, Jeremiah 3 verse 8. This was because the nation forsook him to worship idols. Israel was unfaithful. In Matthew 5 verses 31 and 32 and 19 verse 9, Jesus taught that divorce was forbidden except when one of the partners had been guilty of sexual immorality. In Mark 10 verses 11 and 12 and Luke 16 verse 18, the exception clause is omitted. The discrepancy is probably best explained as that neither Mark nor Luke record the entire saying. Therefore, even though divorce is not the ideal, it is permitted in the case where one's partner has been unfaithful. Jesus allows divorce in this case, but he does not command it. Some scholars see 1 Corinthians 7 verses 12 to 16 as teaching that divorce is acceptable when a believer is deserted by an unbeliever. Paul says that the remaining person is not under bondage in such cases, i.e., he or she is free to obtain a divorce for desertion. The present writer's opinion is that this case is the same exception granted in Matthew 5 and 19, namely, the unbeliever departs to live with someone else. Therefore, the believer can be granted a divorce on the scriptural grounds only if the other party commits adultery. It is often contended that, although divorce is permitted in the New Testament, remarriage is never contemplated. However, this argument begs the question. Remarriage is not condemned for the innocent party in the New Testament only for the offending person. Also, one of the main purposes of a scriptural divorce is to permit remarriage, otherwise, separation would serve the purpose just as well. In any discussion of this topic, the question inevitably arises, 
What about people who were divorced before they were saved? There should be no question that unlawful divorces and remarriages contracted before conversion are sins which have been fully forgiven, see, for example, 1 Corinthians 6 verse 11 where Paul includes adultery in the list of sins in which the Corinthian believers had formerly participated. Pre-conversion sins do not bar believers from full participation in the local church. A more difficult question concerns Christians who have divorced for unscriptural reasons and then remarry. Can they be received back into the fellowship of the local church? The answer depends on whether adultery is the initial act of physical union or a continued state. If these people are living in a state of adultery, then they would not only have to confess their sin but also forsake their present partner. But God's solution for a problem is never one that creates worse problems. If, in order to untangle a marital snarl, men or women are driven into sin, or women and children are left homeless and penniless, the cure is worse than the disease. In the writer's opinion, Christians who have been divorced unscripturally and then remarried can truly repent of their sin and be restored to the Lord and to the fellowship of the church. In the matter of divorce, it seems that almost every case is different. Therefore, the elders of a local church must investigate each case individually and judge it according to the Word of God. If, at times, disciplinary action has to be taken, all concerned should submit to the decision of the elders. G.E. Jesus condemns oaths, 5 verses 33 to 37. 5 verse 33 to 36 The Mosaic Law contains several prohibitions against swearing falsely by the name of God, Leviticus 19 verse 12, Numbers 30 verse 2, Deuteronomy 23 verse 21. To swear by God's name meant that He was your witness that you were telling the truth. The Jews sought to avoid the impropriety of swearing falsely by God's name by substituting heaven, earth, Jerusalem, or their head as that by which they swore. Jesus condemns such circumvention of the law as sheer hypocrisy and forbids any form of swearing or oaths in ordinary conversation. Not only was it hypocritical, it was useless to try to avoid swearing by God's name by merely substituting another noun for his name. To swear by heaven is to swear by God's throne. To swear by the earth is to swear by his footstool. To swear by Jerusalem is to swear by the royal capital. Even to swear by one's own head involves God because he is the creator of all. 5 verse 37 For the Christian, an oath is unnecessary. His yes should mean yes, and his no should mean no. To use stronger language is to admit that Satan, the evil one, rules our lives. There are no circumstances under which it is proper for a Christian to lie. This passage also forbids any shading of the truth or deception. It does not, however, forbid taking an oath in a court of law. Jesus himself testified under oath before the high priest, Matthew 26 63 ff. Paul also used an oath to call God as his witness that what he was writing was true, 2 Corinthians 1 verse 23, Galatians 1 verse 20. H. Going the second mile, 5 verses 38 to 42. 538 The law said, An eye for an eye, and a tooth for a tooth, Exodus 21 verse 24, Leviticus 24 verse 20, Deuteronomy 19:21. This was both a command to punish and a limitation on punishment, the penalty must not exceed the crime. However, according to the Old Testament, authority for punishment was vested in the government, not in the individual. 5 verses 39 to 41 Jesus went beyond the law to a higher righteousness by abolishing retaliation altogether. He showed his disciples that, 
whereas revenge was once legally permissible, now non-resistance was graciously possible. Jesus instructed his followers to offer no resistance to an evil person. If they were slapped on one cheek by someone, they were to turn the other to him also. If they were sued for their tunic and inner garment, they were to surrender their cloak and outer garment used for covering at night, as well. If an official compelled them to carry his baggage for one mile, they were to voluntarily carry it two miles. 5 verse 42 Jesus' last command in this paragraph seems the most impractical to us today. Give to him who asks you, and from him who wants to borrow from you do not turn away. Our obsession with material goods and possessions makes us recoil at the thought of giving away what we have acquired. However, if we were willing to concentrate on the treasures of heaven and be content with only necessary food and clothing, we would accept these words more literally and willingly. Jesus' statement presupposes that the person who asks for help has a genuine need. Since it is impossible to know whether the need is legitimate in all cases, it is better, as someone said, to help a score of fraudulent beggars than to risk turning away one man in real need. Humanly speaking, such behavior as the Lord calls for here is impossible. Only as a person is controlled by the Holy Spirit can he live a self-sacrificing life. Only as the Savior is allowed to live his life and the believer can insult, verse 39, injustice, verse 40, and inconvenience, verse 41, be repaid with love. This is the gospel of the second mile. 1. Love your enemies, 5 verses 43 to 48. 5 verse 43 Our Lord's final example of the higher righteousness demanded in His kingdom concerns the treatment of one's enemies, a topic which grows naturally out of the previous paragraph. The law had taught the Israelites to love their neighbor, Leviticus 19 verse 18. Although they were never explicitly commanded to hate their enemy, this spirit underlay much of their indoctrination. This attitude was a summary of the Old Testament's outlook toward those who persecuted God's people, see Psalm 139 verses 21 and 22. It was a righteous hostility directed against the enemies of God. 5 verses 44 to 47 But now Jesus announces that we are to love our enemies and to pray for those who persecute us. The fact that love is commanded shows that it is a matter of the will and not primarily of the emotions. It is not the same as natural affection because it is not natural to love those who hate and harm you. It is a supernatural grace and can be manifested only by those who have divine life. There is no reward if we love those who love us, Jesus says that even unconverted tax collectors six do that. That type of love requires no divine power. Neither is there any virtue in greeting our brethren seven only, i.e., our relatives and friends. The unsaved can do that there is nothing distinctively Christian about it. If our standards are no higher than the world's, it is certain that we will never make an impact on the world. Jesus said that his followers should return good for evil so that they might be sons of their Father in heaven. He was not saying that this was the way to become sons of God, rather, it is how we show that we are God's children. Since God shows no partiality to either the evil or the good, in that both benefit from sun and rain, so we should deal graciously and fairly with all. 5 verse 48 Jesus closes this section with the admonition, Therefore you shall be perfect, just as your Father in heaven is perfect. The word perfect must be understood in the light of the context. It does not mean sinless or flawless. The previous verses explain that to be perfect means to love those who hate us, to pray for those who persecute us, and to show kindness to both friend and foe. 
Perfection here is that spiritual maturity which enables a Christian to imitate God in dispensing blessing to everybody without partiality. Well, this ends another one of our podcasts. And until uh, next time, just remember, God is out here. And you can find out all about him in your Bibles. All you have to do is pick it up and read it. I have mine right here. And uh, God is in this Bible, so please read it. With that said, bye for now. Till next time.